Last week, I had the opportunity to tell you about some various special events that took place here in Oak Brook in the spring of 1965. Raise your hand if you remember me saying something about this last week. Well, at that very same time that God was leading a young pastor by the name of Arthur DeCryder to gather a band of faithful disciples to live out the vision of the kingdom of God right here in Oak Brook, God was also moving in the heart and mind and life of another gifted young pastor to lead another movement, an even larger movement, that would ultimately secure voting rights for millions of Americans that had been previously disenfranchised. In watching Selma, the motion picture Selma, that tells that story so very, very vividly, I was reminded again of why I am personally glad that the work and the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. continue to be remembered, continue to be honored, and why it actually should matter to all of us and especially to those of us who are followers of Jesus. It's not because Dr. King, of course, was a perfect man. The film actually is quite realistic about this. It is because amidst the vastly greater sin of racism and injustice, Dr. King stood up, he spoke out, he stooped down, he stood fast, he strove courageously for the biblical value of human dignity. He worked hard for the biblical vision of justice. And he gave himself entirely to the biblical call to personal action for the sake of the values and vision of the kingdom of God that Jesus himself unquestionably and repeatedly declared. Dr. King demonstrated for people of every race of every politics, of every age, that truly following Jesus Christ involves loving God and loving other people in an extreme kind of way. And that form of creative extremism, as Dr. King put it, and I've given you a quotation about this on the cover of your worship folder today, this kind of creative extremism is the antidote to so much of the destructive extremism that makes our news today. And that is what I want to think about with you this morning as we examine together not just the message of Dr. King, but its ultimate inspiration in the words and the teaching of Jesus as we find them in Luke chapter 10. And I welcome you to open in your Bibles and follow along with me as we look together today. We begin at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? It seems to me that that's a question that a lot of us ask in various ways. Is there a specific set of behaviors that are needed to get 
this life that Jesus talks about? In fact, is there a minimum behavior requirement to enjoy the blessings of God? Is there some sort of limited liability, medium effort plan for which I can sign up and have all of the benefits of a great life in this world and an and a, a eternal life in the next? And we can appreciate the question, what must I do? This question that this man poses, and as I named it last week, this tendency to believe or to hope that we can have the goodness of God pervade our lives and fulfill our world without a whole lot of extreme investment by us is normal. Right? It's normal. And so we ask, what must I do? What do I have to do? What is the bare minimum I can do to have this eternal life? Knowing the man is an expert lawyer, Jesus turns the inquiry back on him. Because lawyers, as you probably know, my dad taught me this long ago, never ask a question for which they do not think they already have the answer. And surely this man believed he already had the answer. And so Jesus says, what's your answer? What is written in the law? And how do you read it? And the guy probably scratches his head for just a moment, feigning that he has to really think about this. And then he comes up with two famous verses from the Mosaic law. He answers... I must love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of my heart and soul and strength and mind and love my neighbor as myself. That's what I must do. Now, at this particular point in the conversation, this lawyer appears to be nailing the interview. I think he was probably pretty confident, actually, about his standing at this particular point in the interview with Jesus. He has accurately described two critical keys to living the kind of eternal life that Jesus talks about. Uh, Jesus has been teaching people that the keys to life are loving God and loving others with all that you are. Go back and look at all of his teaching, all of his parables, all of his enactments, of the values and vision of the kingdom. And you'll see it's about these two things. About loving God with all that we are and loving people with all that we are. And at this point, the lawyer seems to be right on top of this idea. Now, I think it's important to understand that when we hear the term eternal life, we will tend to think, by our frame of reference, of pie in the sky when you die. Okay, that is sort of our association with eternal life. It is very important to understand that that is not how Jesus pictures eternal life in his teaching ministry. For Jesus, eternal life was not only an everlasting quantity of life beyond the grave, it was also an ever-loving quality of life that begins in the here and now. One of the major themes of the teaching of Jesus is that the quality of life that characterizes the kingdom of heaven. It's the, it's the life that's going on right now in the invisible spaces. It's the life of, of the heavens, of the, of the throne, 
Uh, it's the life that's described in the book of, of Revelation. This life that characterizes the kingdom of heaven has actually broken into our time, says Jesus. It's invaded this world, this, this alternative kingdom of life and love. And it is available now to anybody that will allow it into themselves. That's why one of the very first messages, in fact, it was the first message of Jesus, is repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. It has come near. Jesus is saying, in effect, stop in your tracks. I know you're on a, on a course in your life. Stop right where you are. Turn around. Come this way. Because eternal life, that ever-loving quality of life that my Father in heaven gives in everlasting quantity to those who are joined by grace to him, that life is here for you now. Step into it. Step into it. It will change everything for you. This is what Jesus is preaching as he starts his ministry. I remember one spring break some years ago when my family and I headed down to Florida. And a family in our church very graciously gave us their beautiful home there to stay in for a week. And and we'd come there uh, after a particularly long Chicago winter and a particularly busy, heavy time of, of, of work. And it just felt fantastic to be there. The home had a swimming pool. It was surrounded at one end by these large rocks and by these beautiful ferns and, uh, and abundant flowers. There was this waterfall that cascaded down over the rocks and, and this perfectly beautiful hot tub that just sat there hovering over the pool. And I remember how, how three of us in our party got into the tub as soon as we could. As soon as we got our, our baggage into the house, we were there in that hot tub and we could just feel the stress and the chill of the winter washing away and, and all of our tensions sort of beginning to melt. But, but, but one of our kids was reluctant to get in. I don't know why. He just was, he was hesitant to get in. And all of us were feeling so great here. We just wanted him to come and join us. And we kept calling for him. Come on in. Come on. The water's great. Come on in. And he just was hesitating. And we finally, some of us got up out of the water into the relatively cold air. And we were beckoning him, trying to tug him to get him to come in. And he just wouldn't do it. So we got back in. And finally, he moved closer and closer. And he finally stepped into the water. And we watched his countenance change. And this slow smile spreads across his face, as the water begins to bubble around him and do his work, its work, and you watch him begin to settle into the water, and then in a few moments, he's just sort of in the middle of the three of us, sort of bouncing up and down, up and down, and he's just loving it, and he's starting to splash, and he's laughing, and we can't get him out of the tub at the end of the night. This is a little bit of the vision. That Jesus is trying to give us. Of what God wants for us. Uh, In his final message. uh, One of his very last messages to us. uh, Jesus again pictures this reality. In what we now call the great commission. he, He makes it clear. That God wants in a sense. Everyone in the tub. He says that the. Life of love that God enjoys within the Trinity, 
that circle of the, of the Holy Three, the triune God, that, that, that God wants us to be baptized into that now. And we don't have to wait to the afterlife to be bathed in the warmth of God's life-changing love. We can let his forgiving, life-empowering grace wash over us today in the here and the now. We don't have to go on living by all of the dysfunctional patterns in which we may have grown a weary or, 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 or winter-worn by this world. We don't have to live by the world's rules or the stuff we've grown up with. We can learn to live by Christ's much more life-giving kind of way instead. We can bounce in the direction of heaven, in a sense, because by His Holy Spirit, Jesus says, I'm with you always. Always in this life. And one of the certain signs that you've really soaked in that healing water, and many of you, you've been in the water for a lot of years, you're all pruny because of it. One of the most certain signs of that reality is that you will find yourself extremely eager to get other people to have this experience too. You know, you're going to feel that this grace is not just for you. Right? This Christian life is not just about me and meeting my needs and getting my stuff taken care of and my forgiveness and my assurance dealt with. Right? It's not just for you. You're going to look around you and you're going to start to think, who's missing from this party? Who's cold? Who's sick? Who's lost? Who's afraid? Who's alone? Who's disenfranchised? Who's impoverished? How do I help them into this place of God's abundance? It is a law of spiritual nature, I would suggest. An absolute law of spiritual nature that the more you are living in the love of God, the more His love is going to move your heart like His heart toward other people. Doesn't this make sense? And for just a moment, it looks like this expert in the law that Jesus is talking with that day, he gets it. I mean, he said all the right things. What must I do to inherit eternal life? How do I enter into eternal life? I love God and I love others. It sounds exactly right. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. You just do this and you will live. You will be having this life. That begins today and continues into infinite tomorrows. But the expert wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Suddenly you you recognize that for all of his apparent righteousness, this guy is actually still playing the limited liability game, isn't he? What's the minimum behavioral requirement here? He's asking. Right? That's what he's thinking. Can you point out somebody that I must love so that I can feel right about myself, so that I can look righteous in the eyes of other people, so that I can earn the approval of God or the goodies of God? And so Jesus, looking upon him with compassion, because he's not the first person that Jesus has met like this, and he's not the last person... 
Jesus simply goes on to tell his most famous story. Well, maybe one of the most famous stories. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. Hooray, a priest is coming. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, a temple elder, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey. He brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, that's two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, he's planning on coming back, obviously, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, which of these three, says Jesus, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, The one who had mercy on him. Now, as you have probably figured out, there are a lot of things in this story that are pretty bizarre. Maybe even what you might call extreme. I mean... The behavior of the Samaritan here, I'm going to call him Sam for short, it's pretty odd. Because, let's be honest, he could so easily have done nothing under these circumstances. For one thing, nobody would blame him for not reaching out to help this man in the ditch. And, and maybe that takes some explanation. But you need to understand that anybody in Jesus' first century audience here would have known that the road between Jerusalem and Jericho was the baddest, as in the most crime-ridden stretch of pavement on that part of planet Earth. Okay, this was not a place you go unless you're with a bunch of other people. I've traveled that road myself. I've walked that literal stretch, all these little switchbacks, lots of places for people with bad intent to hide, and nobody around anywhere to help you if you got attacked by one of them. So if you traveled this road alone, you were an idiot. Okay? You deserved what you got. I mean, that would be the common way of looking at this. You were going to be mugged, and you would have brought that calamity upon yourself, and nobody should be particularly sorry for you. You were a cautionary tale. Okay? So nobody's going to blame this guy for doing nothing at all. Secondly, Sam had 
good reasons to ignore the need. <laughs> there wasn't just a deficit of expectation that he would do something. There were lots of positive reasons why he would not do anything here. If he stopped, he was probably with uh, some other folks, he could be mugged himself. And besides, were the roles reversed in this situation, were, were it a Samaritan in the ditch and a Jewish guy going by, there is no possibility that the Jewish guy would have stopped, except maybe to spit, you know, or take something that was left in the scattered wreckage of this man's life. Because the Jews and the Samaritans, these people were enemies. They were from different cultures. They were from different sides of the aisle. They were from totally different neighborhoods. They were almost, in a sense, different races and cultures. And there were generations of separation and conflict and alienation between them. Thirdly, Sam could have very understandably left the job to others. He really could have. I mean, this was somebody else's job. I mean, the Jerusalem to Jericho Road was a connection between two Jewish neighborhoods. Uh, there, there was a Jewish pastor and a Jewish elder coming down the road, right? And, and they were out there in front of him. And there are places on that road when you can see quite a way down, you can see who is going down the switchbacks in front of you. And it was clearly the job of those people to take, take care of one of their own for cultural and religious reasons, right? Surely his family should be taking care of him, his ethnic and religious family. Finally, Sam would have to sacrifice something were he to stop to help. Uh, he would be late if he stopped to help. He'd get dirty and bloody going down into that ditch. He'd have to give up some of his precious oil and wine. They weren't cheap to disinfect the guy's wounds. He'd have to give up some of his clothing and fabrics to dress the man's wounds. He'd have to go out of his way to get the man to a place of recovery. He'd have to go to considerable expense to cover the man's lodging and the cost of that care. He'd have to really disrupt his program dramatically. I mean, really extremely if he was to circle back and actually check on him. And Jesus pictures the Samaritan in the story doing every one of those things. This man acted extremely. Okay? Are we getting this? Extremely. Now, when commenting on this story some years back, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. points out that the first question which the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? They are expressing this fundamental orientation that life is meant to be fundamentally lived from the point of view of what will happen to me. How can life work for me? How can religion work for me? How could others work for me? But the Good Samaritan, says Dr. King, he reversed the question. He asked, if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? What will happen to him? 
It's almost as if the Samaritan in the story has been soaking in the hot tub of God's eternal life, isn't it? I mean, it's almost as if he he so truly loved this God and experienced the love of that God that he was moved now almost inexorably out towards the needs of other kinds of people to which Jesus says, yes, that's it. That's eternal life. Go and do likewise. Again, Dr. King has wisdom to share about that calling of Jesus. He says, life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? The universe is so structured, writes Dr. King, that things go awry if people are not diligent in their cultivation of the other regarding dimension. We can't just leave poverty alone and and, 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 and injustice alone and, 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 a, and a, uh, a selfish, destructively extreme form of religiosity, just leave it alone and think it will just go away, that it won't fester, that it won't spread, that it won't affect everything. Things will go awry if we do not cultivate, says Dr. King, this other regarding dimension. And as the parable, and I think our own experiences today make so very clear, there will always be reasons why we would leave these things alone. You know, sensible reasons why we would do nothing. Logical reasons why we might do nothing to address the spiritual, the social, the physical needs of others. But as Dr. King has said, I have the audacity to believe that people everywhere can have three meals a day for their bodies, education and culture for their minds, and dignity, equality, and freedom for their spirits. I believe that what self-centered people have torn down or are blowing up or are shooting other-centered people can build up again. Do we have the boldness to believe this ourselves? Let me be very clear. Dr. King did not make up this vision. He got it from Jesus. Go home and read Luke chapter 4 if there's any even shadow of a doubt as to where this particular vision comes from. And let me also be blunt. Christ's vision for others It's the historic passion of this place. This is us. This is what Christ Church, at her absolute purest and best, has always been about. It is why the congregation of 200 people that that built this place, at the start anyway, they constructed a hot tub designed for thousands. Right? That's not an accident. There was a vision that was driving this from the very beginning. It's why the founders of the church emblazoned on our cornerstone this command of Jesus to go into all the world. It's why they both funded and volunteered and prayed for ministries in the inner city and all around the planet. They're all about building people up spiritually and socially and physically in every single way. It is why the mission statement of our church is not just gathering communities of disciples who worship, grow, and serve. Most of us 
us know that part best, right? We see it. It's on the cover of your worship folder right now. Worship, grow, and serve. It's why our mission is not just gathering communities of disciples who worship, grow, and serve, but also, in fact, in order to go into all the world as witnesses of Christ's life-changing love. That is our spiritual heritage. That is our identity. That is our mission and our passion. This other regarding impulse of God's eternal love is our foundation as a church. And it is why I feel so comfortable issuing to you this final challenge. Let me be clear. This church is for you. Okay, it is. Thankfully, it's for all of us. It is intended to be a place where in the midst of the weariness and the winter of our world, we can come and soak in the love of God and worship and grow and And serve one another here. But this soaking is for the purpose of sending. We gather so we can go. That's that's the absolutely inextricable connection. It's the cycle. It's the circle of life. It's so that you will be and I will be strengthened and inspired to go out and reach other people. And bring them into the circle of God's love. And so as you go out into these days ahead, I want to encourage you to think for you plus two. Okay? If I could just boil it down to a simple idea. Think for you plus two. I want to challenge you to committing yourself personally to helping at least two other people in this next year experience the life-changing love of Jesus in an extreme way in a radical reorienting kind of way. How could you do that? How might you do that? Here are a couple of quick ideas, and I'll bring us to a close. Number one, build a relationship with someone of another race or culture. We are, we are in stunning danger of fragmenting as a people into tribes, self-focused, self-protecting tribes, cross the line, Climb over a fence, go into the ditch, reach out to somebody else, build a relationship with someone of a different race or culture. Secondly, stop by our serve station in the commons and volunteer some of your time to one of our serve near programs, our local domestic mission programs. Get involved in the feeding program, for example, that we're about to undertake in this month ahead. Uh, Thirdly, increase your giving to our mission fund. Um, Cut back on the Starbucks. Um, Do something more radical so those resources can pour oil and wine and bandages towards somebody that really needs the help. Uh, Open the door of employment for someone who doesn't have a job. Uh, Some of us in this room uh, are uniquely empowered to do something that could open that door of opportunity and dignity to someone else. Um, invite somebody else into the water here at Christ Church. Uh, before the end of this year, make sure there's somebody else who's now a regular part of this circle because you did the, the, the inviting. Uh, read my book, Witness Essentials. Um, this is a shameless plug. But it's everything I've ever learned on the subject of how we love our neighbors. And and it's all written down and biblically grounded. And we have 
tons of copies of them in our bookstore and available online. Read that book and do some of what it suggests. Uh, Work or vote for policies that help repave and reform the Jericho roads of this world so that people are not constantly being beaten and robbed, uh, that there's structural change. Use the power of your political voice to be an influence uh, for, for responsibility, opportunity, Uh, in our culture today. Because if our heart, and this is the last thing I want to say on this, if our heart for others is not pounding strongly enough for us to feel moved to do much of any of what we've just described, um, if our heart isn't just naturally doing that, it's only because we have possibly forgotten That when we were in a ditch ourselves, when this human race was down and out with no hope of coming back on its own, the God Samaritan crossed a great distance and paid an incalculable price to meet us, to love us at our place of need. Please pray with me. Lord, we are challenged in this parable of yours to remember that what a person professes religiously is less significant to you than what they actually do on the roads of this world to express that they have been bathed in eternal life. And so as we go forth today, give us eyes and ears to perceive the needs of others and a heart to join you in the work of your life-changing love. For we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.